Dear Asian Americans, let's celebrate, support, and inspire. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and I am so excited to share with you on this episode five my raw and open and honest conversation with PK. Paul Kim is the founder of Collaboration, the co-founder of Link. He's performed at comedy clubs all across the world and has hosted over 500 weddings. If you've ever been to a Collaboration show anywhere in the world, if you've seen his comedy either in person at the Laugh Factory or on YouTube, if you've been to any of the 500-plus weddings that he's performed at, you know that PK is somebody who has done so much for our Asian American community, not just in L.A., but across the world. PK, to me, is somebody who is more than a friend. He is my brother. And on this show, you're going to hear some stories that you probably never have heard about his childhood, about the origin stories of not only the Kim family immigrating here, but of collaboration, why it means so much to him. And you're going to hear some pretty cool wedding backstories that I know you're going to enjoy, so please stick around for the entire episode. PK was the first person that I had in mind when I thought of doing this podcast. I wanted to wait until episode five to help us close out launch week with his interview. This brings me so much joy to be able to share my conversation with him and his stories to life. If there was ever a person who has single-handedly changed the face of Asian American entertainment across the world, it is Paul PK Kim. And now... My conversation with PK. Hey, PK, welcome to the show. What's up, Jerry? So PK, as you guys heard from the intro, actually requires no introduction in the Asian American community. If you've ever been to a collaboration show, which now exists in 20 plus cities across North America, if you've ever been to the Laugh Factory, if you've been to about 50% of Korean weddings in LA in the last decade, you know him as PK. I know him as my friend and my brother, but I am so happy to have PK on this show. Thanks for making time for us today. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks for having me. A lot of people have seen you on the internet, on Instagram, on your videos, on YouTube, but I, I want to dive into PK chapter, the early chapters of your, your life and um, share with us, how did your family, how did the Kim family become Korean American? Um, where did you guys move to? How did that happen? And, and share with me a little bit about how that influenced your identity growing up as a kid. Uh, so my parents came to the States in the 60s. My, my uh, father and mother, they met in war-torn, uh, poverty-stricken you know, stricken Korea. And um, my dad was you know, a single mom. My, my dad, my, his, his dad was killed by... Uh, from the story was uh, like Japanese businessmen, like, you know, they were coming back and forth. Uh, so when my dad was six years old, he lost his dad. His, his dad was killed. He grew up in complete poverty. My dad told me that, um, you know, a lot of similar stories, like our parents, grandparents, you know, there was hardly any food. Uh, my grandmother would, you know, save her food and give it to my dad and his younger sister, my Como, my aunt, and they didn't have shoes. They always were picked on that was fighting all the time and even though i'm not a good uh christian i you know i do consider myself christian they, i don't know god considers me christian but i do i believe in god jesus i grew up in church um and even though i have a hard time believing in like the bible as the infallible inerrant word of god you know um even though i do believe in god the one thing that my, trips me out is my dad said that in the war He'd heard about God like just a few times, like maybe some missionaries that, you know, uh, came to Korea. And he, he said that he was rounded up with a bunch of people thrown into a ditch and they were about to get like, I don't know, slaughtered, like mass murder or something. I don't know. And uh, by North Koreans and he's or people fighting for the North as well, like Soviet Union. And he said uh, he prayed like, God, please, if, if you can save my life, get me out of this. I will serve you the rest of my life. And then an American soldiers came and saved them out of the ditch. And then he kept his word 
went to some Bible school in Korea and then came to uh, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia with my mom. They came with less than 500 bucks. The first month they said they slept in a closet that was so small that my dad slept the, the diagonal way, long way, and my mom was shorter and she slept next to him. And then my mom wore a graveyard shift every night, uh, sewing clothes. They were just barely getting by purely on the faith of God. And they, um, oh, they had four kids, went back to Korea, studied some more, came back to America. And that's when they came to um, LA and my dad started a church. And then 1976, I was born. So my older sisters are all two years apart. And then I'm 10 years apart. I'm the fifth complete accident. I know my mom was like, it was so shameful. You know, I had you when I was 40. And I was like, why is that shameful? And she's like, you know, I know she didn't want to say it because, you know, that the pastor and the pastor's wife are still getting it on. And I laughed so hard. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, that's shameful. And like, you know, Korean parents are so like proper or, you know, you have to act, put on that act. And I laughed so hard. And so I was born when my dad started a church in uh la it was in la brea like uh, near la brea wilshire la brea OACPC, and los angeles christian presbyterian church back then it's called los angeles christian reform church and then he started with like literally like a few families and then grew it to three thousand people so i grew up in that church watching my dad like hero worshiping him because i i she was like he was the man, right? And uh, you know, Korean churches they like treat their head pastors almost like like a like a president of a country, you know. And so, um, I just grew up in that my background, and it was a Korean church. And you know, Korean Christian churches are like super hyper Korean pride and Christian pride, and a lot of good things. But man, a lot of uh, I don't know. There's a lot of things I needed to get away from in terms of the Korean church. Where did you spend your childhood? Was it was it in Los Angeles or was it in a different part of LA? Yeah, so my brothers and sisters they all grew up in Philly, and then I, um, and then Korea. They went back to Korea. They grew up like elementary, junior high, so they're all fluent in Korean. And then when they moved to here, Burbank. So we had a home, born and raised in Burbank. Um, first twenty one years of my life, I love Burbank, man. Like I think it's the best city in the world. You can come fight me if you think differently. Like I really thought about this. Like we got. Three AMC's, 30 screens. We got NBC, ABC, Disney, DreamWorks. We got Universal Studios, an airport. How many cities have an airport that, you know, but it's also safe around the airport, you know, and then we have like the only Bob's Big Boy around. We got In-N-Out Burger. Not every city has an In-N-Out Burger. Next to a Hooters, next to a bunch of sushi restaurants. How many cities have an In-N-Out Hooters? The really good school district, very diverse. Every time I go to Burbank, it looks like every rate. It looks like United Nations. Yeah, I got really passionate about Burbank right now. <laughs> was it as diverse when you were growing up? No. Or were you the only Asian kid? No. And I've been studying this, like the great white flight. Once a city gets like close to 50%, like non-white, it's even less than that. I think it's like 40% then all the white people take off, except the people that can't afford it. Like they all went to the West Valley or Orange County. Like they all went to Thousand Oaks, Agora Hills, Westlake Village, or then Irvine, you know, like, like all the, you know, Orange County, Newport Beach. They, they just were like, whoa, because it changed so fast, you know, like growing up, I remember Thomas Jefferson Elementary, all white. Uh, there was one of the Chinese student in the neighborhood that my parents found out about. They weren't even like, like you know they were just in the neighborhood and my i clearly remember this his, his name was jack lou uh one of my first asian friends and they found out that there was another you know asian like in the neighborhood and then they came over and then they just had us play with each other and we were like just oh wow okay like another asian and then little by little like later there was steve huang man i wonder how these guys are doing that i heard like they're all over the world like a couple you know like david's song and then like you know, middle school happened. We all kind of hung out and then we all started playing tennis and like joined the tennis team. I was the worst, but we all made the tennis team. And, you know, those guys went on to win CIF championship. But like, I remember every Asian, new Asian, we're like, oh, gee, there's a new Asian. There was a couple white guys that hung out with us. Jason Hoba, Brian Casey. I remember these guys, man. We love them. And they like, and they play tennis with us. And, uh, yeah, but we were kind of like a crew and they were all smart, man. Like, like I was, 
the least intelligent, but still smarter than majority of the rest of the student body. Oh, I mean, so it sounds like we're, you know, obviously in your, your family dynamic, the, the church community, it, it definitely sounds like having four other siblings and, and grown up in a church where your, your father was a pastor, you had definitely had a significant amount of cultural influence. And, you know, that was everyday part of your life. It sounds like you had a little bit of, you know, being one of a handful of Asians 30 years later, if you can name them, there's that, that does that mean there's a finite number of them, right? So with uh, Korean people, we go where successful white people are and the, or, or we follow the Korean newspaper and whatever the best school districts are, then we flood those areas. Some white people stay and some white people go, whoa, this is Asian invasion is too much. What's going on here? You know, like Fullerton, Cerritos, Diamond Bar, Granada Hills, used to be Glendale, not anymore. Uh, you know, those areas, Torrance, Palos Verde, like it just... You, you see that dynamic changes. So now that at Burbank and then, you know, I live in K-Town, Glen, um, Westwood, Temple City, uh, and then back to Glendale. When I was married, we lived the first 12 years, we lived in Glendale. To see the change of from like, Glen, Burbank, Glendale used to be like white. And then now, I can't, sometimes I go on, I can't see a, a single white person. And like how quickly that changes, like, whoa, like, and how... I don't know, United States of America, we're definitely segregated and we really need to come together more. And I, the more I live in La Crescenta and I see that, I, I understand how people can kind of look at Korean people like, man, they don't, how come they don't even try to talk to us? So, that if, you know, on both sides, I can kind of see frustration, but that's kind of how I grew up, like with this identity of like mostly white and then growing up in a strong Korean pride home like with the korean flag and the american flag were waving at our house but but more than anything it was the cross like you know my dad would get so mad every every week people you've ever seen churches korean churches the lost and found there's so many bibles my dad how many people just lose their bible church <laughs> and just like come home and like and he sometimes he would like call them out from the pulpit like all these people better pick up your bible <laughs> I mean, but there, there's other, uh, I'd imagine you can pick up a different Bible in church and I mean, it's the same book, right? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes a name will be on it. Uh, but yeah, that's the dynamic I grew up in. And I do have to say, though, every church retreat, it made me realize, I didn't realize it fully till later. <sighs> like my parents, uh, I had a really good, they, they were such good parents and good people. My dad's, in, you know, my dad passed away 10 years ago. He's in heaven now. And my mom's in Korea with my older brothers and my older sisters. They all moved back to Korea. But they just, they had a 50-year marriage. And yeah, of course they fought. But they net one thing, if anybody's listened to this, that's married and you're going through, because I've been there and we've, my wife and I have failed. My parents never fought in front of us. They always closed the door. We heard them yelling. Yeah, sometimes really bad. But they never visually fought in front of that made such a huge impact in my life. Like I realized, yeah, they do, they're doing that for us, you know, and we didn't see them. He was very loving to my mom, like his whole life. And, you know, of course they had their disagreements. I bow down to all the married couples that just humble themselves to work it out. Cause you know, I've been married 14, 13, 14 years now. I've been with Tammy for 17 and 17 years. That's <laughs> not not easy, you know, and we were, oh, man, it's like, I think of my parents and my, and, and Tammy, she yeah. grew up, Tammy grew up uh, single mom, I all the respect for her mom, but her dad bounced when she was young, like elementary. So it's just like, we come from different places and some of our fights are just from our childhood. And it's like my parent, like we fought in front of our kids too. And I'd get mad. And then 50 years, never, never visually fought in front of us. Yeah. I'm going on five years now and it's challenging um for all the other folks listening who are married or about to get married and it's uh the, the not fighting in front of the kids i think that's really really good advice your first foray into the entertainment centered around korean and asian americans was collaboration now it's known widely as a very very broad asian american talent showcase you know spanning the cities across north america you started collaboration as a one-man operation back in 2000. What sparked that inspiration? And take me back to your mindset of the day or why'd you do it? Growing up, 
Thomas Jefferson Elementary, all white kids and me, there's just times when I remember they would just, you know, typical like slanted on, ha ha. And I, but that's when I started like making fun of myself and I empowered myself. You make fun of yourself first. I was scrawny. I was like a little chopsticks, chicken legs kid, you know, and like make fun of myself first. Then it totally takes away their power, you know. I learned that early, but then always feeling out of place and then feeling empowered with, wow, like, there's, you know, Jack Lou, Steve Wang, David Song, you know, like David Na. And then, then my first crushes were, you know, Elizabeth Kim, Sue Jun, like all, like the Korean girls that came and then they, at church and then feeling like so at home at church with all the Korean kids. And then if we had like a crew, my parents uh, did not like my friends because they thought they were bad influence, but it was just me being an idiot. I got arrested for shoplifting at Burbank Kmart for stealing like uh, a calculator, one of those TI calculators. That's really bad. Uh, the nerdiest thing. You stole a calculator? That, that, that's like that. That's like a stereotype out of all the things to steal out of a Kmart. Yeah, it was. It was. But it was expensive those calculators. But it was just something like I didn't have money, and I just felt like out, like left out. And you know, you're when you when you're a kid, there's nothing more powerful than like that pain of feeling left out. Like everybody had one, and my parents didn't think, "Why you don't need like this expensive calculator?" And I just remember like hearing that other kids were taking stuff from that Kmart. And then I just like, I don't know, the devil took over me and I got arrested. And then uh, the guy <laughs> took me to Burbank Police Department. Fingerprint, he was just teaching me a lesson, but I didn't know it. Fingerprint mugshot. <laughs> fingerprint, fingerprint mugshot me everything. Like in the mugshot, I probably have like tears in my eyes. And I'm thinking like, oh man, I'm going to go in the cell with people who are like beating their wives and stuff. And I'm, what'd you do? I took a calculator. And, uh, and then they let me call home. I'm literally, I'm like pissing my pants. Like, God, please let my brothers at my brother or my sister's answer. Please, God, please not my parents. Or I like, they will literally, they've hit me before, you know, Korean parents and they're not, they're old school. Like they've, uh, they've used the belt on me, you know? Um, and uh yeah i thank god my brother's uh <laughs> my brother sam answered he's all a pastor and uh him and my brother dan came down they were um their look uh, i'll never forget it sometimes you know you know when you do something so wrong and you you rather wish they scream at you or punch you instead of just silence i just remember like they took me home. They put. They took me to the backyard in Burbank. Had me old school crazy to have me hold a big rock above my head while they lectured me with tears streaming down my face. They weren't berating me, but they were like, they're trying to get me to like remember this moment. Like, what? What are you doing? It works. Like when you have shame like that, and when you know your brothers who love you, and you, like, and you're the little brother, you're like their baby brother, and they're just like teaching you a lesson. You know, they yelled at me, and then they hugged me, and I was crying. You know, but they were the ones that were kind of like telling my parents, like, you know, we don't think his friends are great, but it really wasn't my friend. It was just me being stupid, being influenced. It's not when you're a kid. There's nothing worse than when you when you feel like you're left out. Like, you'll do anything. That's why kids join gangs, you know? It's, like, so stupid. Like, it's all about belonging. And uh, I just had a momentary lapse of, like, sinning and, and breaking the law. I remember as a praise leader at the retreat, I confessed that to everybody. It's so funny. It was, like, ninth grade crying, and everybody's, like, shocked. <laughs> <laughs> Took it back, man. Like, I don't think, I don't think I've ever talked about it since. People are like, whoa. But then that was a turning point. This is a long story to get to this point. My parents transferred to the village Christian, which is kinder in Sun Valley, kindergarten through 12. I went there as a 10th grader. I was a loner. I ate lunch alone. And I'm not even like, you know me, Jerry, like I'm like a really charismatic, outgoing guy. I, I was trying to make friends, you know. I, there was a point when I clearly remember, and it feels like an ABC after school special movie moment. I, I went up to these guys that I kind of was like talking to in class. And then I don't know, there were like four or five of them. And then I was like, hey, guys, can I go to lunch with you? And they were on the parking lot. And they're like, oh, and they were trying to be mean. But they were like, oh, sorry, like car's full. And they zipped away. <laughs> I was like, whoa. And I went, I got a, like a chimichanga from the taco truck, like a taco truck in the park. And then I went to, I went to the library and I ate lunch alone. 
I remember that moment, man. Like, new school is hard, man. When you're a new student, people like who've never been through it, everyone should be a server once so you understand. Yeah, you'll never know unless you've been through it. And it's like, I ate lunch alone for months and I used, I escaped instead of facing my fear. And that's when sports, I mean, I always love sports, but I'm talking about like every lunch, I take the sports page, just get my lunch. And I would read front to back every part, every article and box scores. Like when Tammy has seen me read box scores, she's like, what the hell is that? Right? Like a bunch of statistics, sports statistics from the previous day. What? What is that? And I'm like, oh, it's all the points, rebounds, block shots, steals, you know, RB from the previous day. She's like, oh my God, like you read that? And I'm like, yeah, it's it's like, it's exciting to me. It's amazing. But the real reason is because they were my friend. They were my friend that first few months. And then I made the volleyball team uh, as a setter. And then I got, you know, you make some friends once you join a team. But then the next year, I cut. Oh, so much pain. This is why I'm a Clipper fan. Oh, yeah. And then I got my car. My first car was a $900 Burgundy Volkswagen Golf. You know, my parents gave me like $1,000 to buy a car. I found this piece of junk. The front bumper fell off all the time. Like I could I take it to a place to try to put it on this little, one of those heavy ones. And then it would just like, like a tiny little, and it would just fall off again. But, uh, and I would just put it back on with like crazy glue. Yeah. Once I got my car, then I would just like leave campus for lunch. So I just was like a loner at that school. I had friends, but then I go to college, Occidental College, which is at that time, the number one uh, Newsweek ranked most multicultural liberal arts school in the nation. Cause we had a black president, John Slaughter, and he was just like really vigilant about, let's just make this very multicultural, most multicultural school. And then so my roommates were white, black, Latino. I'm the Asian guy to this day. We're still good friends. So glad I went to a smaller liberal arts school. I know for sure if I went to UC, I would only have Korean friends. Uh, I just know my personality. And then I would be 100%, you know. Um, so after college, I'm working at this customer service place. And I'm like, what am I doing with my life? And just taking everything I learned from my dad and what he started for one family and, you know, a few families to 3,000 people. But I'm not really like on the whole you know, I want to devote everything to like my faith. My pride was like, man, I'm trying to put Asians on the map or especially Koreans on the map. And there's so many, I knew so many like Korean singers and rappers and there was no platform. This is way before YouTube, you know? So I decided, you know, I'm going to start this show. I had already hosted a bunch of like K-pop type shows or like college type shows at like Korean American Leadership Conference, Calc, it's gone now, but Cask on. And I was like, I was doing well. I was emceeing these talent shows, telling jokes in between. And that's like the beginning of my stand-up career, to be honest, is like cracking jokes. And I'm like, oh, wow, I can do this. And even at long before at church, I was the praise leader. I would always try to slip in little stories. Probably, you know, God was not happy. It was like, you know, I was trying to do stand-up and like whatever little bits, but try to make it inspirational. And then I had that idea. And then I was thinking of names and then, I was like, okay, I'm going to put the staff together. The first pe people on staff, Rena, Sandy, Ben Chung from Jabawakis, now in Kinjas. Mike Chung, he was a dancer back then. Toran Cheng, she was a graphic designer. Uh, Peter, UCLA. Like there was like a, a Karen. There was seven of us and me, eight. I had them come to my apartment in Westwood. I lived with three of the roommates. And we, we just started meeting. I remember at first, they were like, Peter's like, PK. Cause I was just like talking about my vision for this. And he was like, are you serious right now? <laughs> like, it's like, what, like, what are we doing? You're, you had us come over, you know? Yeah. I just gave them like some, like a little bit of snacks and stuff. And they're just like, I was like, I want to do this annual talent show, you know? And the original one was LA versus OC. We're going to get LA singers versus OC singers, LA rappers for OC rappers and uh look for places and then you know i think this is where you said you know we one of the first times we met got the usc Bovard theater fits 1200 200 people came <laughs> wow it was empty i lost so much money i used my credit card bro i lost like five thousand dollars 
Yeah, they charge real prices for the, the student auditorium at USC. Well, I thought, you know, you only calculate, this is what I could make. <laughs> right, of course. You op- optimistic people. Oh, my God. Credit to my brother-in-law. He, he My oldest sister's husband, Eric Chong, he owns Natural Spa. Shout out to Natural Spa in K-Town. He, like, sponsored, like, the next two. Like, he helped me out with the um, the theater rent because those theaters cost a lot of money. And then one, you know. So, basically, the first one was, like, you know, it was focused on Koreans. I wasn't going to continue, obviously, because I was like, what a failure. I got these emails from, like, Koreans that were visiting from, like, Oklahoma. I got to find these. I got to find the exact one. They were visiting from, like, out of town. They are like, that was one of the most inspirational things I've ever been to. Please keep it going. You know, we put some of the videos up. People were like, oh, my God, what is this? Um, and it wasn't in videos on YouTube. It was just, like, people emailing files to each other. Well, I mean, that was how things got viral back then, right? Like, we're, we're talking... The year 2000, 2001. I had a song called Casa. I, I sang it so Casa, Korean American Student Association gala, uh, like dinner. Someone was recording. Whoever recorded that, God. I was say. there. Oh, yeah. It, it was a Valentine's Day. That went viral. Literally 10 years later, helped me get my wife. Because when I was dating Tammy, like when she was like, oh, my God, you're the guy that wrote that song. That's so funny. Like, I was already in now. Like, oh, my God, whoever recorded that and passed that around. Like, you know, I was like, when I met Tammy at a, at a Korean nightclub, I was like really into her. Once she knew that, I was like, I wrote that song and she had heard it years ago from someone just forwarding her an email. Wow, that comes back full circle. So thank you to whoever did that. I still remember the song vividly. To like redo that. Not, it will go viral, but at least within the young Korean community, there's a whole bunch of people that haven't heard it. I, I think a lot of the old... KSA Chongde friends who are listening. I mean, I I think we could get together a, a small reunion so you can sing. Uh, it, it costs a lot to be an opa. One more time. Thank you. The funniest thing is like, I've had like younger Korean like guys tell me, man, we would sing that at our church retreat. I go, wait, what? <laughs> they're like, they're like so, someone would just have a guitar and like you know we all just be hanging out before praise or like a campfire and like someone would just break it out singing and then like a bunch of us knew it and that i felt so flattered man i was like wow thank you man like wow so i just in terms of that i do wish that youtube was earlier i think i, I could have like utilized a lot more and i really wish that i started on youtube like earlier you know long story short collab started there 200 people came Kids said, you got to keep going. I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm not going to quit. Did collaboration two at the E-Bell in K-Town. 400 people came. And this is where we did dance comp- freestyle dance competition from the audience. This guy had a Korean girlfriend. His name is David Elsewhere. I remember orange sweatshirt. Yeah, we put that up with collaboration, watermarked it on the bottom. That goes massively viral. I like just to everywhere. And then next year, eight, uh, so 200, 400. 800 then we got cocky <laughs> we should have just stayed there. <laughs> we to civic auditorium which fits 2000 and then we got like half full so like a thousand but then what was important about that was roy Choi was attending and he's a super successful young older guy friend he was just happened to be there and then he loved it so i get this email from him saying like hey you want to meet for dinner i was suspicious i was like wait what um i had to ask around ask a whole bunch of people like who is this guy everybody said good things <laughs> but he because he said you want to meet a taylor steakhouse in cape Town? it's all dark and candlelit it's like some weird romantic place that he's like taking me out to dinner i'm like who is this guy you know he's a few years older he's super baller and uh you know we just talked and he basically was like i love what you're doing i'm not trying to like take it over but if you make me a 50 50 partner you won't have to worry about like the financial aspect of locking down these theaters which is the hardest part you know it's like ten thousand dollars, and sometimes more. Like, you know, we did the shrine. It's like forty thousand dollars. It's like, how am I? How am I going to do that? You know, I'm like, I have a salary. I'm like, what am I going to do? So I was like, yes, hell yeah, I'm in. And that's all credit to Roy. That's when it really took off. I mean, Rena, Christine, the early step, everybody. You know, I owe them everything. And there's like hundreds of people, probably over thousands now, staff in every city that have contributed to collaboration. Love you all. Roy, you get so much credit. And then once we sold out eBay at 1200, Roy's like, hey, you know, what do you think about making it 
you know, Pan-Asian, Asia Pacific Islander. At first I was like, you know, I don't know, I don't know, you know, it's a K-Town thing. But then he just convinced me just because, well, one, Roy's just a wise guy. He's like one of the smartest people I know. And then also he just only had good intentions. He wasn't trying to be like um, for his own self. So we did it and it just took off. We went, oh, even before that, we were already establishing it in other cities. Like I established it in Chicago, New York. But once Roy came on and the, he financed a lot of, and he didn't get a lot back. He's just doing it out of the goodness of his heart. God, now when I really think about that now, it's like all the people that behind the scenes that help the people get well-known. I really hope that those singers and rappers and dancers and performers appreciate it, you know, just because they were given a God-given talent that they nurtured. There's so many other people that don't have that talent that were just, they just wanted to be a part of it and help them. You know, they were holding them up and uplifting them. And Roy's Love him. One of my closest friends. We were in each other's wedding, and it's all because of collaboration. I met him. Still friends to this day. We just hung out last weekend. He he's the biggest reason why I became Asia Pacific Islander and why we blew it up. At one point, it was fourteen cities, and then our watershed moment, collaboration nine at the Shrine Theater next to USC, six thousand three hundred people, and we turned away a thousand. Even though later I found out, I'm, I apologize. I wasn't part of this team. It was a logistical nightmare. A lot of people got in like an hour late or halfway through the show because the ticketing was all jacked up. So our bad on that part. If anybody's listening and you got uh, messed up, I'll buy you a drink at Cafe Blue. <laughs> really sorry. I actually found a Yelp on collaboration recently. And like, it's all good, except at collaboration, nine people were pissed, dude. Nine. Oh, my God. But then nine, collaboration nine was 6,300 and collaboration 10 at the shrine was about maybe 5,000. So there's a thousand empty seats. And so even though there's 5,000 people, I felt all disappointed, man. I was like, oh man, we didn't pack it. And so those two shows, oh, actually the one right before at the Orpheum was 2,000 or 2,500. But then once we got Bola for, and all the biggest YouTube stars, in the beginning, YouTube, all the biggest stars were Asian American before all the other like maybe like 20, 30 of the top 100 were like Asian. It was crazy. But I think it makes sense, though, because we, we weren't being asked to be on TV. We weren't being signed to, you know, deals or anything. Well, I was actually, I would say maybe even out of the top 50, 20 or 25, like like we were dominating. But then now we really got pushed out just by sheer numbers, you know. It's a, it's a different game. It's a different game. But I went to VidCon and I realized, wow. You know, AJ Raphael was there. I was hanging with them, and it was like mostly just Asians in his line. And then you go to like some of the other YouTubers, and it's very you know diverse, but or like all their ethnic. I don't know. It was just like interesting to see. I don't know, but that I remember that those were the glory days for me in terms of from the beginning to how empty it was and feeling like. Oh, and like hearing like, ah, oh, this, this is never going to work. I heard that. Like, this is so dumb. Um, and getting weird, like hate emails. I remember this one guy was like, uh, you're, you're, this, this is just a sad attempt of you just trying to, um, get people together so you could have an after party. I'm like, really, bro? Like, You've never thrown my- an event at that scale then brother, like, because that's not yeah. the reason why. <laughs> Planned six months of blood, sweat and tears. I was in the beginning, I was doing everything i was promoting the posters and do the tickets i was like like you know i was the liaison for all the artists and the rent and all like 10 jobs before like you know everything was figured out with the staff but i did figure out one of my gifts was mobilizing and i heard it from a sermon that i went to and how um you know, similar to Malcolm Gladwell's, like the tipping point, there's salespeople, mavens, and connectors. I'm definitely a connector. And whatever gifts that I, I saw my dad have, like, utilize that. Every time we had a staff meeting, oh, and this is a, this is, comes full circle to what you asked me. Thank you for the beginning was about how I grew up. Was that pain that I felt going to a new high school helped me so much be a better leader later. Because I, I know what it's like to sit alone at a new meeting. And if you're not talked to in the beginning, right in the beginning, you're, you're, every second feels like 10 seconds. You're just waiting like four scump in the bus, like you're just going down the aisle, like, and everybody's like, seats taken, seats taken, seats taken. You're like, that pain 
not only made me a Clipper fan, but also that pain was the reason why, like every time we had a meeting, I would see people just come, you know, for the first time and immediately I'd talk to them and immediately, you know, ask some questions. I would connect them with someone on a group that I thought was similar. I would just have such a good habit of doing that, like over, like real quick, listening to them and then like, you know, introducing them to someone and then like just kind of pairing up everybody or getting them into groups real early. And then also utilizing competitiveness in teams. So I got everybody in teams and then had them meet during the week. You know, like churches do that. They know what they're doing. Churches, I know what you're doing. The small groups, yes, it's for accountability, faith, fellowship, but it's also the most proven way for growth. Like look at Rick Warren and, um, you know, Saddleback Church. It's like people need to connect. And once they connect, once they belong, and when it's young people, once they've they're looking for their future husband or wife or to hook up or whatever, right? Once you provide that for them, and this is before dating apps and all that, and people actually talked to each other face to face and didn't ghost each other like cowards. I grew our volunteer staff. We're talking about non-paid volunteers, like interns, like non-paid. They get zero, except we fed them sometimes because they knew we weren't making money either, the leaders. We grew from like 10 to 100 people at one point. 100 that's an army, like a hundred people, volunteers, just wanting to be part of it and just helping. You're very humble throughout all this, but I mean, there are people who've launched their now like full-time, full-fledged, amazing entertainment careers because of collaboration. There are hundreds, thousands of volunteers who found a home, who found friends, who found positive Asian American identity because of something you created. There have been, there are babies now in this in this world because of collaboration and, and people met through it, right? Like it's in, inspired obviously so much in, in all, you know, event planners. There are businesses around this now. There are, you know, artists and performers or, you know, even the remnants of, you know, I have friends in different cities because of collaboration. I genuinely believe. And when people say like, oh, one man can't make a difference. I, I really think about you and I'm like, yeah. PK had a crazy ass idea 20 years ago and look like it's still going on and we will actually never know the full impact of the one crazy idea. Right. So it's something that I share and, and preach all the time. Like, just do it because you don't know, like you, you don't get to judge. Right. Like, could you imagine 20 years ago what it even half of what it is today? Like, it's wild. I yeah, I hundred percent agree with you. Thank you, by the way, bro. Thank you. Love you, man. And you've always been a great friend. I think that especially when you're young, if you're listening to this and you're in college, high school, or like in your twenties and you have an idea and you're passionate. And if you want to get married and have kids later, you better do it now. Cause it's not happening later, man. Unless you're a millionaire, like it's not, there's no time. There's no energy. Like you have an idea, do it now. Like one of my ideas, I'll just give it away. Cause I know I can't even do it. And I know it's not an original idea, but I just know it takes a massive amount of energy is I wanted to do like, uh, an app convention like AppCon, where it's like all the app makers and you have it at LA Convention Center and it's annual or wherever, Vegas, and it's like all the booths, but it's also, you know, entertainers, performers, and, you know, artists. Um, and, you know, I, I really wanted to do, but I don't have time. I'm barely living right now, man. It's like the scale of what I would have to do and get angel investor. It's like, I thought about it and then knowing collaboration, I was like, oh, never mind. It's like crazy, man. It's like I'd have to give my life. I, I saw that documentary on Pixar. Those people like gave their life and were so they said they were burnt out for years after. Like, so some projects you get as you get older, you realize, yeah, you have to weigh the cost benefit. I'm gonna second your comment about starting when you're, you know, pre marriage, pre kids. I mean, you got three kids, I got two. Um, I start a college, like, literally the day you graduate. Stop this podcast now and go, go, go sign up, go get that domain name, whatever, really. It's just, if you're feeling inspired listening to PK's story, just go. Your second semester of senior year, just start. <laughs> whatever <laughs> it is, like, just, if you start now and then, like, at your 2021 and then you just stay at it, like, keep chopping that tree down in 10 years, dude, oh, my God, dude. It's just that people don't. They wander, you know, and then I like I wandered and I'm like, dang, man, I wish I just stuck. I, I wish I started stand up comedy like right after college and stuck with it and not like 
just kind of like, oh, yeah, I'll kind of dabble. And and then it's just like now I'm hanging on to the dream. But it's just like, really, like just wish, you know. Like, have you read that, uh, The One Thing? Great book. If anybody wants to read that, man, I wish I read that way earlier. Uh, shout out to Daniel Kim, Birch Labs. He referred that to me. And I read it twice. Yeah, it just made me force it. Because I'm the type, I want to do everything. But as you get older, it's like pyramid. You have less, less time. You, you fool yourself. You, you could try to pull all-nighters when you're old and you'll kill yourself. Um, and yeah, but for me, it's just whatever I can do to become successful at stand-up. But the thing is, I have a family, got to make money. All your stand-up, though, you're, you've, you've been doing it consistently, had a 10-plus year run at the Laugh Factory of one of the longest-running weekly shows. You've done now how many weddings? It's very painful to say. Why? Because uh, it's it's really exhausting. People don't know how exhausting it is, but I, I I think it's the same things that you're you bring joy into people's lives and you play a role in in pivotal exchanges of people meeting and celebrating. And I think whether it's collaboration or standing on a stage where you get to make people laugh or being the the entertainment hub and the quarterback of what is arguably one of the most important days for most people once they get married. The, the amount of positivity and, and joy that you bring to the world is, it's insane. Thank you. Wow. That's awesome. I, I, I'm glad, I need to hear that because I've done, I'm not, I'm, people, I'm not exaggerating. I calculated in the past, like, cause like the first one I did was my older brothers. That's how I started. And so he's 10 years older than me. So after that, I was like, oh, I can do this. And then I started doing it, you know, and then I, I've done over 500 weddings. And so I literally prayed before each wedding, like, God. Soften my heart. Let this be true. I want all my feelings to be true. I want to be happy for this lovely couple. It's for them. It's the most important, beautiful day. For me, it's number 515. <laughs> so I kind of like psych myself up, man, because before that, I'm taping down wires. I'm carrying equipment. I'm helping my DJ, you know, set everything up. That's the part people don't know. Like, I'm not a strong guy. My back is weak. I've hurt, my back hurts a lot when I'm carrying stuff. And so, it's just like, I remember when I was 35, I, I told Andy Her, my good younger guy friend, he was helping me a lot. I'm like, man, if I'm still emceeing weddings at 40, I, I, I'm I not doing something right. I'm 43, man. <laughs> I'm like, I got to give myself a time limit to 50 now. I'm like, wait, how many how many weddings am I going to emcee? This is, uh, but it's I'm very grateful. It helps me provide for my three beautiful kids who are everything to me, so. Share with me your most favorite or most memorable collaboration memory and your most favorite or memorable wedding MC memory. My favorite collaboration memory, well, when I exited after 10 years, uh, people were thinking like there's something weird going on. I'm like, no, I was just burnt out. I did 80 shows across the country. I flew to each one and each staff was preparing an entire year for it. So they're parting their ass off and I'm parting with them. And but think about 80 of those. 80 of those. But that, this was your side hustle. This was not your main gig. That's incredible. So I was still like working weddings. I was doing stand up. I was emceeing. I was doing whatever it takes, right? I'm just, I'm not balling. I'm just, I'm living the life though. Like, I'm, I'm you know, I was uh, uh, working customer service partying with my friends on the weekend but doing a lot of community work i was involved in like every korean community <laughs> nonprofit. you know like it, it was just like i man my 20s were amazing and i oh, wish i could be 21 again i uh was just really passionate about the asian community because i felt like it was just like historic and an exciting time and i get to you know tell my jokes on stage and i you know, it's just bringing the community together. It's so hard to bring even 10 friends together and afford to go eat. But bringing the community together and um, it's just, yeah, it was exciting. But I was burnt out. And then the staff and everybody, Roy, Rena, Christine, everyone, they threw me an amazing farewell. They got like a, they did a farewell video with, uh, you know, like a, a bunch of amazing actors, like John Cho, like all these big actors were on it saying like, you know, great job, PK. I was like, whoa. Everyone, the whole staff thought I was going to cry, but I was just like smiling and happy. Like, man, I, I, even though I wasn't a Kobe fan, then I, when Kobe retired, I remember he, he said this one thing, rest at the end. 
I gave my all um, to collaboration. Like on my tombstone, I would married father of three and right underneath like founder of collaboration. Like only God knows, like in the beginning, oh my God, I like, I, I was doing everything. No, but I think even today, people still consider you, your your name and collaboration synonymous. So I, I think it's, you know, obviously a tremendous amount of credit to the dedication and time and energy you put into it. Oh, yeah. Shout out to Jannie, too. I forgot. She helped us with collaboration so much, too. She's my neighbor now. Collaboration 9 at the Shrine, we had 6,300 people on the beat. I remember the first collaboration when I said, Asians in the house, make some noise. And it was like golf clapping. Phew! And then Collaboration 9. Asians in the house, make some noise. It was so loud at the shrine. I'm not kidding. It like kind of pushed my body back, like the way like if a televangelist was trying to like God's power on you, like it pushed me back on stage. I remember, and my eyes got watery, bro. Like literally, like I was holding back tears. Like, wow, this is amazing. Like this is a moment. Like from the beginning to nine years later, like. This place is, and it started at USC at the Boulevard, and then we went to the Shrine. Like, blew me away, you know. And so, I'm just trying to do the same thing with my career with stand-up, and I believe it. Like, I'm just gonna keep grinding away, and I know that things will grow with like positive energy, and just keep working hard. And I think that uh, that was my favorite, and then my favorite. What'd you say? My favorite moment of what? Doing MC stuff, wedding. Uh, I just have some classic memories emceeing weddings. You know, when I'm fully retired, I can talk about all of them. But, uh, you know, obviously when uh, the good ones are when the parents cry, whew, I, I usually fight back tears. Like if it's a father-daughter dance and the dad is crying, I've seen the daughters cry. But like sometimes I see the dad cries and it's like a Korean dad that looks like He's been smoking and drinking his whole life. Like, I, I fight back tears, man. I, I've seen some dads come like in crutches or a wheelchair. And then I asked and people like, oh, he came from the hospital, like straight up like Tiger Woods' dad. But he came just for the wedding. I'm like, whoa, dude. And I'm fighting back tears. So those are awesome. And then um, like, I've, I've, you know, got some backstory. You know, marriage is not just two people. It's two families. I've, I've heard some like, like families that really don't get along but for the wedding they got along and then during the dance part they're like dancing together they're not like like holding hands but they're having a great time they're like just for this one night you know what let's squash it let's not you know for our kid that's really beautiful to watch i've seen and then um you know i like some vows are really cheesy corny but man i've seen some felt some real amazing personal vows um that what that like humbled me like man i need to be a better husband man. what the hell <laughs> so it's like uh those are the good moments the bad moments uh two fights at a wedding at weddings like former asian danger type guys fought during the wedding stopped the wedding one of them uh glendale police department came broke the whole stopped the whole wedding the bride was so so upset of course um and uh i seen one bride get a bloody nose and it dripped on her white dress <laughs> oh my god it, people felt so bad that um because you can't get it out that uh everybody partied extra hard and i like for her like nobody left like everybody like stayed till the you know like it was just kept like you know yeah, how do you leave? Like you can't. Yeah, leave that I think they use like whiteout or something. <laughs> oh man! And then uh, I've seen um, like just super the like the worst toast ever. One time, like the brother, like you know, he's like a younger brother, and he was wasted giving the best best man speech, uh, and he like straight up in front of everybody he goes. To the bride, he goes, How come I, I didn't meet you until like last week? <laughs> oh, geez. And like, he's like, You've been dating for years, right? And then, uh, and then he started talking about like uh, the bachelor party and the strip clubs. And then the groom is looking at me like, Dude, cut it off. Like, he's doing the cut it off symbol. And I, we, we lower his mic and like, I look at, I look around, and literally, it's funny when you see like, <laughs> eyebrows raised at the same time like 
everyone's eyebrows is raised and looking at each other like, what is what the hell? Uh, and then uh, the worst toast ever was, uh, this was in San Diego. Uh, yeah, you know what? I'll, I'll, I won't give too much details, but um, Asian wedding, I'll just say that. And the sister of the bride, older sister, which a lot of Asian people understand the dynamic. The older sister wasn't married. Younger sister gets married. Younger sister is cuter. And the older sister's wasted. And she does the nightmare. Like she just lays it on her, tries to be funny, but, you know, completely passive aggressive and just ruined her sister's wedding. Like she goes, you were always the favorite. And people are nervously laughing. You were always the favorite. It was always about you. You know that? And then she goes, you don't even remember it was my birthday this week. It was all about your wedding. And everybody was like, oh, man, that's awful. I remember the videographer, his head came out of the camera and he looked at me like, what? <laughs> like, he was like what do you do? What's happening? And then uh, I was inching towards her, like, to try to take away the mic. And she was like, you, everyone here doesn't even know. Like, this is not even your only wedding. You're so spoiled. You have another wedding in Asia. Like, I'm not going to name the country. You have another wedding, you know, that's paid for whatever. No, and man. everybody, it's it times hush. Because before that, people were nervously laughing. Like, haha, she's just clowning on her. And then uh, she just, like, just kept drilling into her. And there was no, and then, and they didn't hug each other. She went back to her seat. And then I took the mic and then I was like, all right, let's give a big round of applause. I just got to bring the energy back because, you know, people were like kind of laughing. And then I go, all right, next up is our best man. And he's going to give an even bigger passive aggressive toast. I just, <laughs> and I, I just had to like call it out because I was like. Oh, you have to. I mean, but that that's, I mean, you, you, you play a critical role in that. Oh, that's 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 some crazy stuff. The man. worst toast I've ever heard in my life. So when when you're when you're done, when you retire from wedding MC, you you got to write a book. Oh yeah, I'm and I think that's book. that's gonna be a bestseller. Or, I don't know a bestseller, but I definitely think that uh, it'll help uh, my kids' college fund. I think I could make like twenty, thirty G's from that. Like, <laughs> deepest, darkest secrets of all the weddings that I've done. Oh man, interesting segue, but. I, I want to thank you, and, and I want to ask you one more question, which is this podcast, it's entitled Dear Asian Americans. The vision is to help celebrate, support, and inspire each other, you know, from us, right? So it's a, it's a letter to us, from us. So uh, finish this sentence. Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, I really hope that we can be uh, encouraged and inspired by everything that's going on today uh, with all the Asians that are, um, they're making it, let's be honest, in movies, TV, journalism, writers, uh, producers, artists, restaurateurs, cook, chefs, uh, you know, every in every aspect, you know, politics, community, doctors, lawyers, engineers, of course, uh, and it's really because of our parents' sacrifice, our grandparents' sacrifice. So I, I hope that we never, ever forget that. I hope we learn the history. I, mean, I don't know enough history, but especially like the history of our ancestors, our grand, great-grandparents coming here, our grandparents, like as like field servants, you know, picking rice and building the railroads. And some of them were tortured and whipped and burned you read about it and so um it's all because of them and we need to honor them more i need to do it more but right now i'm just in a place you know with married with three kids where i'm i just try to share whatever is positive that's my role just try to you know send it to me i'll share it for you you know um but uh let's be encouraged by that let's to really try to focus on the positive. It's just way too much negativity in the world. You know, I get caught up in it too. And let's focus on the growth. You know, we're only five, six percent of America, but 
we're really making waves and let's just continue to teach our children to, you know, to do the same and remember all the hard work of our parents and our grandparents. A lot of them who came to our country with nothing and all for us. And it can't be just about money. If we're just trying to do it for money, we're losing our soul. And we are, you know, South Korea, Singapore, Japan, just to call out a few countries of many, China, like you, I mean, you don't have to be like a religious zealot or, you know, you could be an atheist too, or it's just all about giving, to be honest. Like, it's, it's life's about love. It's like, if we're not giving, like, what are we doing? You can't take anything with you when you die. And this life is a mist and we could die tomorrow. So it's like, what, what impact did you make on other people? What did you give to other people? You know, and it's, it starts with the people immediately around you, which I always have to remind myself because I like hanging out with everybody. And my wife just only likes hanging out with her friends and her family. So there's a, there's a compromise there, you know, it's like, got to take care of your family first. And then, and then what are you doing for other people? So it's, you know, for me, I got to make money to take care of my family. I got to focus on that. And then hopefully I can make enough where I can, I can be free to start giving to other people. And um, I hope that, that we all do that. You know, the happiest times of my life growing up was I was a giver, man. I, I, used to make Christian tapes, cassette tapes, and give it to like everybody in our youth group. People still remember that. And I remember how happy I was doing that, like really happy. I remember I was a part of the Welcome Committee Church and calling people. And some of the people I called stayed at church forever. Like to this day, met their husband and wives. I, I deserve a suit for that. And uh, I think that I hope, I, hope, I hope that we all remember just to give i i think you've given more than many of us ever in our entire lives up to this point through collaboration through a whole host of other things that you continue to do bringing people together making people laugh um so i i know i speak for everybody listening thank you pk you you really changed the course and uh the trajectory of of our community um so uh, I love you, man. It, and it's really, really, it's an honor for me to have you on the show. And I, I know that greater, fun, awesome, more amazing things are going to come your way very, very soon. Thank you, brother. I respect you much. And you've always been an amazing leader in the community as well, man. Thank you. Thank you. Where where can people, I mean, you should know by now, but if you're listening and you don't know who PK is, let them know where people can find you on the internet. First, you can find me at Cafe Blue after weddings on the weekend. Um, <laughs> you can find me online at PK Comedy on Instagram, PK Comedy page on Facebook, or uh, pkcomedy.com. I got a bunch of my old stand up there. I'm working on some new stuff. I'm really excited. Uh, it's a lot more raw. I think Jerry, you've seen some of my more recent stuff. I'm really like scared because I know that it's some of the uh, vulgar stuff or whatever I'm talking about you know, married and, um, the lack of sex, whatever, <laughs> like, you know, just real stuff, like how that's going to be on YouTube and my kids are going to see it, but I can't, I realize I can't hold back, you know, what am I doing? Like, you know, we could die tomorrow. I've, we've, we've all lost friends and family members. So, um, that's where they could find me on stage somewhere. Every, every first Friday of the month, 10 PM at the ice house, sticky rice comedy, come out, just look it up, uh, and hope to see you there. Thank you again. This means so much to have you on in our first weekend. So grateful for everything you've done. And I am even more excited for what's to come, man. Thank you. And kids, don't shoplift. And uh, shout out to NetCal. Thanks for listening to this episode. Shout out to NetCal, the network of Korean American leaders. And please don't shoplift, especially a calculator. Or you might accidentally end up starting a global movement and an organization that uplifts so many people around the world. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with PK. I've known him for almost 20 years now, and, and some of the stories that you heard, I had never heard before. It's crazy what he's been through, the number of lives that he's personally impacted through his decision to do something to represent all of us on a global stage that he continues to do daily. PK, thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming and sharing your stories with us. And more importantly than that, thank you for being my friend and my brother. I thank you for listening to Dear Asian Americans. This is episode number five, which concludes our launch week. 
I am so excited to continue the show going forward and share so many unique and meaningful stories with all of you. If you want to come on the show and share your story, please let me know. If you know of somebody whose story needs to be shared with all of us, please reach out. You can learn more about the show at DearAsianAmericans.com, on Facebook and Instagram at DearAsianAmericans. You can reach me directly at hello at DearAsianAmericans.com or hello at JerryWan.com. Big thanks again to Justin Park, whose song TLC helped us kick off the show, and to Peter Hong, then Jason Liu, and Allison Chang for being an amazing part of this process. If you're still listening, that means you must love me a lot. I thank you really from the bottom of my heart. As many of you know, this podcast and this project is a gift for my daughter Charlotte on her first birthday and all of our kids so that they can grow up listening to stories from people who look and sound just like them. I can't say thank you enough. Dear Asian Americans, let's celebrate, let's support, let's inspire. This has been your host, Jerry Wan.